We've got two readings this morning. Uh, The first one is a selection of readings from 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. And we're now going to continue at verse 7 at the top of that page. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site whilst it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits and they were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites, and will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, panelling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of pine. He partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in front of this room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with gourds and open flowers, Everything was cedar, no stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold, and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. In the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the first cherub was five cubits long, and the other wing five cubits, ten cubits from wingtip to wingtip. The second cherub also measured ten cubits, for the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. The height of each cherub was ten cubits. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out. The wing of one cherub touched one wall, while the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. On the walls all round the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. And now continuing at chapter 7, verse 1. 
It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon, a hundred cubits long, 50 wide and 30 high, with four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. It was roofed with cedar above the beams that rested on the columns, 45 beams, 15 to a row. Its windows were placed high in sets of three facing each other. All the doorways had rectangular frames. They were in the front part set in sets of three facing each other. He made a colonnade 50 cubits long and 30 wide. In front of it was a portico, and in front of that were pillars and an overhanging roof. He built the throne hall, the hall of justice, where he was to judge, and he covered it with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the palace in which he was to live, set further back, was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married. All these great structures, from the outside to the great courtyard and from foundation to eaves, were made of blocks of high-grade stone cut to size and trimmed with a saw on their inner and outer faces. The foundations were laid with large stones of good quality, some measuring ten cubits and some eight. Above were high-grade stones cut to size and cedar beams. The great courtyard was surrounded by a wall of three courses of dressed stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams, as was the inner courtyard of the temple of the Lord with its portico. King Solomon sent to Tyre and brought Huram, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and whose father was a man of Tyre and a craftsman in bronze. Huram was highly skilled and experienced in all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and did all the work assigned to him. He cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubits high and 12 cubits round by line. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. Each capital was five cubits high. A network of interwoven chains festooned the capitals on top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars in the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubits high. On the capitals of both pillars, above the bowl-shaped part next to the network, were the 200 pomegranates in rows all around. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south he named Jachin, and the one to the north, Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies, And so the work on the pillars was completed. And now finally, just over the page on 344, we finish with (coughs) verse 51. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Our second reading is from the book of John, chapter 2, starting at verse 13. And you can... When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and other sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords 
and drove them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, a zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove that your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. I know, I know, it's another crazy reading. I know you're thinking, I feel like I've just read from the Ikea catalogue. Just without the pictures. I know, I know. Em, who came, who read, came up to me this morning and just said, why? I could remind you that Paul says in the New Testament, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that by endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I'm slightly clinging to that this morning. Everything, everything was written that we may have hope. Let's pray that that would be the case. Our Father, you have good purposes for recording every word of the scriptures. So please, would your spirit help us now? Help us understand them rightly, so we love you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know how many made good use of uh, London Open House weekend a couple of weeks ago, you know, that weekend in September when all of the uh, public buildings or lots of them get opened up and you can go and visit uh, whatever you want to visit. Uh, Foreign Office, Magnificent, uh, Horse Guards, you, you can go and visit Downing Street if, uh, if you want. And um, all very, these magnificent public buildings are all opened up and uh, you can go and have a look. And I guess there's something fun about that. They're, you know, incredibly ornate. Uh, and there's some pleasure in the exclusivity of them. It's only one day in the year you can get into uh, lots of these places. So impressive. But no one would really say they are the greatest buildings in the world ever, probably. You'd have to be a fairly one-eyed Brit to insist upon that. I don't know what you'd go for. The greatest building of the world. Uh, there was a vote a few years ago, 2007, I think, eventually it came out. What are the seven modern wonders of the world? The buildings that, you know, you've got the ancient wonders, but what are the seven modern ones? Do you know? Would you like to know? Yes, well done. Uh, so just the, the Colosseum, the Taj Mahal, Machu Picchu, uh, the city of Petra, uh, Christ the Redeemer, the statue in Rio. I'm always a bit uncertain the pronunciation of this one, but Chichen Itza. Is that all right? It's all right. Uh, you know, the Malayan ruins of Mexico. Uh, lastly, the Great Wall of China. Stonehenge got an honourable mention, but it um, was never that impressive. Now, I don't know how splendid some of those were in their heyday. I don't know how much gold there was in a place such as Machu Picchu uh, at the height of the empire there. But I'd still insist, the Bible would insist, that this building, this Temple of Solomon is the greatest building the world has ever seen. Not just because of the amount of 
bling that it had. It had plenty of that. But because God dwelt there, in a way you wouldn't say of any other building, the living God dwelt there. Not physically, in the sense of you could pop him for a cup of tea, in that sort of sense, but intensely, God lives everywhere. But intensely, you might say representatively, covenantally, however you want to phrase it, think more of that next week. But it was God's house. That's how he dwelt amongst his people. And that's why we get three chapters on its construction and then one chapter on its dedication. Four chapters of the Bible dedicated to this, this building. And of course, at first glance, we read this and go, huh? what? And you have to be some form of niche, I was going to say geek, but that would be overstating it perhaps, some sort of niche expert to love the details of architecture, the sort of person who maybe does read through the Ikea catalogue and talk endlessly with joy about, oh, the merits of Ivar storage and the laminate flooring, and it's quite detailed what we get here. But God has recorded it at some length, and we didn't read it all, at some length, longer than numerous letters in the New Testament. Why? So that we understand, again, quite how special it is that God dwells on earth with people. It is very special. There's really one big idea to that there's a whole section really of, of chapters five to seven. God dwells here. But we'll see, there's two, amidst all the building regulations and uh, uh, the, the site management and what goes in and, what's, and the soft furnishings of chapter seven, although they're made of bronze, so you wouldn't really call them soft furnishings. But, but amidst all that, there are two interruptions and we'll come to them later on. But God dwells here is the big point. So let's spend our time a good chunk of it on that. God dwells here. We've got a picture. We've got a picture, Rob, of the temple. We've got one. There we go. You can leave it up there. Uh, I don't know how much of it you can see. Uh, Maybe look at it later. But uh, God dwells. Now, chapter five is all about the preparations. Solomon spends a fortune going to a a neighboring kingdom and and spends a fortune on, on cedar, the best building material around. Uh, and costs a lot of money. Chapter 6, you get to the dimensions and the detail of it. So verse 2, what sort of size was this thing? The temple that Solomon built, chapter 6, verse 2, 60 cubits, 20 wide, 30 high. So about 90 foot by 30 foot by 45 foot. So it's not enormous. It's not magnificent in its scale. Modest uh, by modern standards, although by the Standards of the day, quite a big building. So about four times the size of the tabernacle that they've been using up till now. But the emphasis really comes, I I mean there's plenty here, but to try and keep it simple, on the internal beauty of the temple of God's house. The internal beauty. So just split those apart. The emphasis is really on internal, not external. So the external is chapter 6, verse 2 to 10. That's just a few verses. The rest is really on what goes inside. So just in sheer material, the emphasis comes on uh, what's going to go happen inside. Uh, have we got a sort of a slightly better plan? This is not too bad. Um, I, um, run with it, it's not perfect. But uh, most of the attention actually goes upon the back room, the most 
holy place. So no one, Joe Israelite can't wander in. You can only go into the temple if you're a priest. And no one goes into the most holy place apart from the high priest once a year. But that actually is where most of the attention of this description comes. Because the ark is going to go there. That is God's throne, God's seat. So most of the emphasis is on the throne room, the most holy place. That's the heart of the building. That's right at the center, internal. And again, the second element here is its beauty. It's incredibly ornate. So there is a lot of gold. Uh, Eleven times the gold is emphasized, particularly in verses uh, 20 to 22. Loads of gold, gold, gold. Uh, Not only any gold, verse 20, he overlaid the inside with pure gold. Not Not your cheap stuff. This is not from market. It's the very best. It's pure gold. And it's everywhere. So chapter 6, verse 30, even the floors are gold. Is that good for kids to skid on? I don't know. But um, it's expensive. Lots of things are carved. There's an ornateness to it as various things are decorated. But verse 32, everything that's decorated, cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, they're overlaid with gold. There's enormous extravagance here. So the emphasis is on the internal beauty. The point being, God dwells in beauty, splendor. Okay, so what when you read through something like this? You can't go and visit this temple today. It was destroyed in the year 587 BC. It was rebuilt in Jesus' time. It took them 48 years, as we read, but then it was destroyed again in AD 17. All that you've got left, of course, is the one wall, the Wailing Wall. So you can't go and see it now. But, but we have read John 2 as well, where Jesus says, I'm the temple. What does he mean? 1 Kings, Old Testament. God dwells in the temple. That's how he lives amongst his people. John 2, New Testament. God dwells in Jesus. That's how he lives amongst the people. You want to meet with God, you go to, well, the temple. Now you want to meet with God, you go to Jesus. Not fabulously impressive building, not magnificent stones chiseled out of the quarry. No, Jesus, of course, his, well, it was a frail body. It was beaten, it was broken. It was destroyed, but raised to life again three days later to pay for the sins of you and me. May not have looked very much, but again there you had internal beauty of Love, compassion, of obedience, the perfect man. That's how the temple appears. And then, of course, in the New Testament also, the New Testament letters, we had it read at the beginning, will declare that the church, the church is God's temple. The church is the dwelling place of God. So again, 2 Corinthians 6, Paul can write of of the church, we, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Now, that is true individually. 
God dwells in the life of every Christian by his spirit. That's true. So what difference does it make when you read 1 Kings chapters 5 to 7? Well, they'll tell the individual believer, look, God dwells in beauty. And when he comes and lives within you by his spirit, what he's doing in the life of a believer is creating internal beauty. He comes and lives within you to change you, to transform you, to make you beautiful like Jesus in his character. And okay, you might think, well, it's quite a lot of material to read through just to get that point. Well, he really wants you to get it. For God to dwell within you is not a small thing. It's a very big thing. And he's transforming you. No carved lilies or pomegranates will appear upon your flesh. It's a work of internal character change. I can't remember if I've told you this before, but uh, George MacDonald, the Victorian writer, uh, writes uh, all sorts of things, but wrote a number of children's stories. They're allegories for the Christian faith, a bit like C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Uh, Curdy is his hero. So uh, in the second of the series, uh, The Princess and Curdy. Curdy is a young man on a quest. You don't know the details. He's going to rescue a city. But uh, before he goes, he meets with his benevolent sort of fairy godmother who uh, gets him to put his hands into a a bowl full of rose petals and they burn, his hands burn and burn and burn. Uh, And he pulls them out and there's no scarring on them. But it gives him the extraordinary ability that when he holds someone's hand, he can see their character. So whenever he holds someone's hand, he doesn't see their physical appearance. If they're a lovely, delightful, faithful, moral, kind person, he sees them as beautiful. If they're selfish, self-centered, and, and, and uh, mean, he sees them as an ugly person when he holds their hand. It's the gift he's given. And so he realizes, he doesn't realize at the time what's all this burning of the roses in the hands, but he realizes it when he catches hold of the paw of this ragged old dog that he's his companion, Lena the dog. And he grabs hold of her paw and realizes... When he sees this just beautiful young woman, ah, oh, here, is, here is a faithful, loyal, kind companion for me. Now, that would be quite a useful gift, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be useful when you shook someone's hand, you know, you have a, oh, nice to meet you, ooh, ooh. Uh, nice, oh, that's nice, you're quite handsome, internally, as it were. Um, that would be a useful gift to have, wouldn't it? Now, what 1 Kings 5 is saying, 6, 7 is saying, God dwells within the individual believer, changing their character. You can't see it. Not obvious always. But that's what he's doing, creating a work of internal beauty. That's true individually. And of course it's true collectively. Uh, If you're visiting uh, today, you can look around and the Bible would say every individual Christian here is a living stone built together to form God's temple, God's dwelling place. We're living stones. And you could easily come in and look around and say, well, they're a pretty mixed bag, and we are. And you might look around and think, well, this is pretty unlikely building material. And we are. And in many ways, you know, maybe superficially things may look good. But with a building, superficially things may look good. But actually some of the stones may be Fickle, unreliable, damaged, hollow, messed up, dangerous to build on, 
And that's a bit like us. We're a mixed bag. And yet God decides, chooses to build his temple with pretty unpromising stones. Like many of us here. What's another difference? These stones, these stones in, uh, uh, of the temple, they're all cut from this fine quarry. Here, I guess we'd have to say we have stones gathered from five different continents of the world. And there's something quite special about that in this temple being built. Doesn't look impressive, but it is impressive. Because God's at work. And of course, unlike these physical buildings, God's church will never be destroyed. They will last forever. God dwells here. Here. Amongst his people. Here. In his church. It's a wonderful thing for him to do so. God dwells here. But there are two Ah, what do you call them, intrusions, um, odd things that appear in the text. Twice, you know, they we're going through the building regulations and the quantity surveyors, and I said, oh, this is very interesting. Uh, and we're working through it, and then these two things crop up, and they're completely different. So let me just uh, do them not in order. But first, uh, God dwells here. If you're not distracted, chapter 7, 1 to 12, if you're not distracted... Four chapters then, chapters 5 to 8 are all about the temple. And yet right in the middle of it, chapter 7, 1 to 12 are about Solomon building his house. Not the temple for God, but his own house and the government buildings. And it seems slightly odd to include it here. But let me just pick it up at verse 38 of chapter 6. In the 11th year of the Mount of the Bull, the 8th month, the temple was finished Solomon had spent seven years building it. Seven years building the temple. Chapter 7, verse 1. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. Okay. Those two things put next together. Why? Well, if you read through the details, because Solomon's house is twice the size of God's. Well, actually, twice the length and dimensions. It's four times the size So let's build this magnificent temple for God. And let's build my house next to it. It's slightly, oh dear, oh dear. Solomon, the temple's not meant to be a chapel on the side of your magnificent mansion. And you read through what he spends on it. Oh dear, he's spending more on this. Probably the, uh, the amount of cedar involved than possibly in the temple. And again... I think there are a couple of points being made by including 7, 1 to 12 here. The first is, it's just one of those hints that you get in this whole section of 1 Kings, chapters 1 to 11, Solomon's fickle. He loves the Lord, he loves himself. He does what's right, he bogs it. He's mixed up. He's fickle as a believer. He builds a bigger house for himself, spends more money, and it takes longer. He's distracted from what should be his concern. And yet I think, I think, I think, I think the other point being made by including this here, uh, chapter 7, 1 to 12, is even though this is a much bigger palace than the temple, even though the government buildings are here, the throne room, the, the, the place of judgment is here, God says it's only worth one column. 
this whole section on the temple, however you phrase it, I don't know, number of words, but it's 13 columns in this Bible. One column gets given to Solomon's house. Now, I think there's something slightly pointed about that. Imagine your parents or someone in your family decided to write a history of your family and uh, wrote a chapter on each one, if you've got siblings, each one of your siblings, if you've got them. And every one of your siblings got 13 chapters in the book and you got one. That's, you'd probably feel that a bit, wouldn't you? A little bit unloved at that point. There's something slightly pointed. If everyone gets 13 chapters, you get one. I think that's the issue here. Oh yeah, Solomon spends more money on his own house. Solomon gets, spends more time on his own house. But it's not very important. Just so we're clear. We'll give it a little bit of time and no more. I think is the point. And so for you and for me, we need to remember where God dwells, the church, that's important. And we don't want to be distracted by things which are not God's building, God's house, is more important than our own palaces. I read uh, in one commentary, this, this I thought was a very striking way of phrasing things. The most significant thing happening in history is that God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. That's a very vivid way of phrasing things. The most, the most significant thing that is happening in history is God is building the church of Jesus Christ and everything else is scaffolding. And yet we, you and I can get obsessed with the scaffolding. That's odd. It's a good picture, isn't it? You know, there's loads of scaffolding on the Houses of Parliament at the moment. I don't see many of the tourists saying, oh, let's get some photos of the scaffolding. They want the building. Of course they do. To be obsessed with the scaffolding is, is odd. Very striking. I was struck while I was off on study leave. I went to one church. They really got this. It's, um, it wasn't a massive church, probably about 400 people, but in an affluent area, I'll grant you. But they were having a building project. They were building, not in the church, just new facilities for the children's work and the youth work. It was a five million pound project. Wow. For only a church of about 400. Wow. And I said to someone I knew in the congregation, that is a massive amount of money to raise. And he said, yeah, I guess so. But look around. There are a number of people here, I guess, who spend £100,000 on each child's education, secondary school, university. And so why wouldn't I choose to spend that amount of money on Sunday school education for my children? Not just for my children, it will last for generations. That's just a common sense investment, isn't it? It's just common sense. I thought to myself... Yeah, I'm not sure everyone would view that as common sense, actually. I'm not sure people would feel that way. But he's got it, hasn't he? The most significant thing God is doing is building his church. The rest is scaffolding. 
Now, fear not, fear not. There is no imminent building project here, so don't panic about that. That's not where this is going in any sense. And of course, there's a danger anyone doing any sort of building. Oh, I was going to put in a new kitchen. I can't now. No, no, no. If your house is being used for the building of the church, it's brilliant. If you visit someone's house and they've got new scatter cushions embroidered with pomegranates and lilies and cherubim and things like that, don't say, oh, you just everyone listening. Um, no, 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 no. Come The point is, the most significant thing God is doing in history is building the church of Jesus Christ. We mustn't get distracted and focus upon building our own palaces. Don't gaze at the scaffolding. God dwells here. Don't get distracted. And last little thing, if you're obedient, here's the second intrusion into the text. Let's just go back to chapter 6. These three verses, 11 to 13. This is, at first glance, a very dreary list of building construction. But then insert into it, you get these three verses, 11 to 13. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, as for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep my commands and obey them, I, if you do those three things, then I will do three things. I'll fulfill through you the promise I gave to David, your father, that is, one of David's descendants will rule forever. I'll live among the Israelites, secondly, and I'll not abandon my people Israel. If you do these three things. Now that's just interesting. You get this jarring intrusion into the text. Just a reminder to Solomon. Solomon, you can build me a temple, but without a temple, but without obedience, it's worthless. And we can gather as church, but without obedience, it's worthless. And we can sing our hearts out, but without obedience, it's worthless. And you can do a hundred activities for the Lord, but without obedience, it's worthless. Yes, that is true. But here, these verses are addressed to Solomon and Solomon alone. Verse 11, the word came to Solomon. And every time it's you, in the Hebrew, it's you, singular. Solomon, if you do this, Solomon, if you obey, the whole kingdom is safe. No pressure. If you obey, there'll be a king on the throne forever, and I'll never leave my people and never abandon them. If you obey, Solomon, how do you feel about that? No pressure. Solomon represents the people. Now, we're familiar with that concept of representation. It happens all the time. Apparently, there was some sport on yesterday. Apparently, um, don't know much about that. But in November, in November, uh, uh, Great Britain will compete for the World Cup in tennis, or the Davis Cup, as it's also known, because we beat Australia in the semi-final. So therefore, we will play. <laughs> Stop it. We will play Belgium in the final. Of course, when I say we will play Belgium, I essentially mean Andy Murray will play Belgium, and his brother will probably help him a little bit. But we basically know that the Great Britain team really is one man, Jamie Murray. Now, if he goes to, in November, and if he beats the Belgians, if you look, I can't name any of their team, can you? But if he beats the Belgians, we will be the champions of the world because of the one man. Here, Solomon, if you obey, the whole kingdom is safe. The problem is, 
even in this section, Solomon's bogging it. He's not wholehearted. He doesn't follow all of God's decrees, carry out all of God's regulations, keep all his commands. He doesn't. Even here in chapter 7, he's married an Egyptian woman. He shouldn't have done that. He's already married. Shouldn't be making treaties with the Egyptians. It's just hints already. Solomon, if you do this, all will go well, but you're not going to, are you? There's a problem. Which is why when we get to the New Testament and are told a couple of times when Jesus declares, one greater than Solomon is with you in reference to himself. Jesus doesn't just mean he's wiser than Solomon. But Jesus is the one who is greater in his obedience than Solomon. And so it is, in the language of 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 12, it is as if God the Father says to Jesus, My son, you have followed my decrees. You have carried out my regulations. You have kept all my commands. Therefore, I will fulfill the promise I've made. Jesus, you, you will reign on the throne of Israel forever. And I will dwell amongst my people. And I'll never abandon my church. I will be with them forever. Because Jesus of your obedience for them. God's temple is the greatest dwelling place in the whole of history. Not the physical one. It's gone. It was built. It was destroyed. It was rebuilt. It was destroyed. His church. God dwells amongst his church. And because he lives there, it is the greatest dwelling place in the world. And he's not going anywhere. Because Jesus has guaranteed he's one for us. He's obeyed for us. So the living God will always be with his people. Let me do this in prayer. Father, these are, at first glance, very strange verses to us. But clearly we need our heads sort of being hit hard so we get quite how wonderful it is that you would dwell on this earth and now you would dwell amongst your people, creating in us individually an internal beauty like that of Jesus, growing within your church beauty of a people who love you and obey you. And Father, thank you that your presence is guaranteed through the obedience of Jesus Christ. We praise him. Amen.